All right, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, I just praise you for your uh, goodness to us, and uh, thank you for this passage in Genesis and for Hebrews 7, and God, I pray that you would help us to understand as we open your word today together. Uh, Teach us by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, Brad, read Genesis 14, this passage for us, and we're going to be in Hebrews 7. It's going to take us a bit to get there, to be honest. Um, I thought about it today as I looked around and I saw the red, white, and blue and realized, yeah, there's no way I can make those two go together. Uh, I can't say that Hebrews 7 in some way talks about the freedom we have in our nation, but it is good to celebrate this weekend together with you. Okay, so we're going to touch on, well... Would you go with me on a bit of an adventure today as we look at Hebrews 7 and consider this enigmatic figure, Melchizedek. He is a bit of an enigma, isn't he? I plan to tackle the chapter in two full sermons. We'll begin that quest today. The first half will be an introduction to Melchizedek as given given to us in the Old Testament. The second half will cover Hebrews 7, 1 through 10 today. My sense is that It's always a good place to start by reading the text. The text of Hebrews chapter 7 is pretty long, pretty beefy. And to read it without an understanding of Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, the two other places Melchizedek is mentioned, uh, is probably a little bit um, of an impasse. It's probably not the best choice. So today we're going to start with Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. So from Genesis, as Brad read that to us, what we know so far from Genesis, the story seems to go this way. Four kings from the east take on five kings from the region near Hebron. And this is the the pre-story to the part that Brad read. Uh, So four kings from the east come and attack. Five kings from the region near Hebron where Abram had settled. They attack and they defeat those five kings, including the king of Sodom. That's important. They plunder Sodom, Gomorrah. In this plundering, Lot and much of what he owns, including his family, is taken by those four kings, and they head out of town. Abram hears of these happenings, and he musters the troops. He has 318 trained men in his house, and they take off after the kings, take off after Lot. He pursues them to the north, 160 miles north, to the modern-day northern tip of Israel. So if we're looking at a map of Israel, which we will at some point today, he pursues them to Dan, which is the northernmost point in Israel. A beautiful region. Uh, And there he defeats them in battle. They flee with Lot, and they flee with the plunder in hand because they're defeated in battle. And Abram chases them another 100 miles north to Damascus. Uh, Yeah, you recognize that. Into Syria. Abram overtakes them and he takes back all the plunder they had after defeating them in battle. He also takes back Lot and everything that was a part of his house, which is likely his family uh, as well, who were taken. So Abram takes them, takes the plunder, takes Lot, takes his family, and heads back south, back toward Hebron, his home. On his way back, two kings come out to meet him. 
The meeting takes place in the Valley of Shiva, very near Jerusalem. Likely the Kidron Valley, which lies between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. If not this valley, a valley within a few miles. I don't know if that's the next slide or if it's a later slide, but yeah, there we go. Okay, so you see on the left there, um, what would be maybe what Jerusalem looked like in the time of Melchizedek? So very small, uh, just, you know, a few dozen maybe houses, maybe, maybe, maybe a hundred houses, very small, uh, region of which Melchizedek is the king. He's the king of Salem. We'll be talking about that today. Uh, so, and then you see the modern picture of Israel. And I know all of that might not make a lot of sense, but you've got this same Kidron Valley running on the east side of Jerusalem. Uh, you've got the Mount of Olives just to the east of the Kidron Valley and the Temple Mount. Today you can see the Dome of the Rock, the golden building there that's on the t- uh, Temple Mount. The Temple Mount in Melchizedek's day wasn't even settled. It would be an area outside of what was settled, up nor- uh, kind of to the north of the city. So that's just for a bit of an understanding, a bit of a feeling for what's going on here. So... Um, this Kidron Valley, which lies between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. If, if not this valley, they, they met somewhere very near, in a valley right near Jerusalem. So maybe the valley on the south side. That's the Valley of Hinnom, uh, Gehenna. Uh, or maybe another valley that's within a couple miles of here. But it's very near this area, and I think likely the Kidron Valley. The King of Sodom. So this is not Melchizedek, the king of Sodom, recognizing Abram's military prowess because Abram just took 318 men and defeated five kings. The king of Sodom, recognizing his military prowess and the fact that Abram is the general, the leader. Do you ever view Abram that way? That's who he was. This is who he was. Recognizing him in that way. He tries to put Abraham in a position to owe him something. Notice the end of verse 21 that Brad read there for us. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. You keep all the goods. These are from my territory, some of them, Sodom. Uh, but you keep it, you keep it, you keep it. Don't worry, don't worry. You keep it, you keep it. The idea is... He wants Abraham to owe him something. He wants Abraham's protection. This guy is a military leader to take 318 men out of his own house and defeat five kings. He wants Abraham's protection. In truth, he wants God's protection. Maybe he doesn't know it, but that's how Abraham wins this battle. Through the protection of God. He wants God's protection of Sodom. Hmm. I think we find out in just a few chapters that these people were not followers of God, not desirous of God. And that's what he wants. He wants God's protection through Abram of Sodom. Now, the other king who came, excuse me, the other king who came out to meet him, the king of Salem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's the only, it's the only, uh, excuse me, this time in history, it's only called Salem or peace, shalom, 
wholeness, the idea there. So it's only called Salem there, but as believers know, uh, one possibility for where uh, the etymology of the term Jerusalem. Uh, as I studied this, there are three or four you know, different Jewish perspectives, uh, Christian perspectives on how Jerusalem gets its name. We all understand that the Salem, Salom, in, um, in Arabic, is an idea of peace or wholeness. Okay, we understand that, but the Yeru or Jeru, where does that come from? One strong possibility, I believe, is in, uh, we would find in Genesis chapter 22. Abraham takes Isaac to the land of Moriah, the same Temple Mount, the land of Moriah. Uh, Moriah, to a certain mountain that the Lord chose. That is the very same region. He takes Isaac to the mountain of God, what we currently know as Temple Mount, a.k.a. Zion. You've heard it called Zion. But the more natural reading uh, of this term of, uh, excuse me, uh, God calls the place. God calls this place when Isaac and Abraham, Abram are there or Abraham are there. He calls the place Yera, which we remember as God provides. You know, Isaac's on the altar and God says, no, don't don't lower your hand. I will provide. He provides the ram. That term I will provide is Yera. And it actually means not necessarily God provides, but it means God sees. And I think this is a key uh, thing that we can take away today. There will only be a few that seem to be applicable maybe in our day and age from uh, Hebrews 7. But I think a key that we can take away is that when God sees a situation that needs his provision, he provides. There's never a situation that God doesn't see. And there's never a situation in which the need for God to provide is there and he doesn't. God sees, God provides. In the situation with Isaac, God saw. God provided a ram. It is inherent to God's nature that if he sees a situation requiring action, he provides. There's no question. So we now have Yera Shalem. Yeru Shalem, I think, is a possibility of the idea that we find in the naming of Jerusalem. Alternate possibility, Yeru can mean to establish. So God will one day establish peace or this place will see peace, I think is the idea of Jerusalem there. So back to this king of Salem. King of Salem, Melchizedek, whose name we find out means king of righteousness. He comes out to meet Abram in the valley near Jerusalem. His offer is quite different from the king of Sodom. He brings with him bread and wine. To be honest, this is kind of like normal fare for kings in this day and age. Like bread and wine, that's what they would eat, that's what they would drink. Uh, some people see like the sacrifice of Christ, the bread and wine. They see something in relationship to Christ there. It's possible. We probably talk about that in the second uh, sermon on Hebrews 7. We learn that Melchizedek, king of Salem, is a priest of the Most High God. That's what Genesis 14 tells us. El Elyon, God Most High. He is priest to none other than the God of Abraham. And this is unique. This is unique. This is before the Aaronic priesthood. This is before the Levitical priesthood. Before any of the law begins. 
And we've got a priest of the Most High God somehow showing up in Genesis chapter 14. But what Melchizedek doesn't says is really important. So read with me what he doesn't says, verses 19 and 20, if you're there, Genesis 14. Melchizedek blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. He, Melchizedek, a priest of God Most High, in essence out in the middle of nowhere, not part of Abram's family, he blessed Abraham the patriarch of Israel, the father of many nations, the father of all who believe. Melchizedek blesses Abraham or Abram. He also blesses God most high, confirming that he knows this God to be creator, possessor of heaven and earth. He believes that God most high is the one who allowed Abram to defeat the five kings in battle. He recognizes this fact. This is El Elyon. Yeah, he's the one who won this battle for you. For some reason, when we see Abraham, excuse me, Abram give one-tenth of the spoils of war to Melchizedek, uh, why is he tithing to this priest in the middle of no... Uh, that's what Hebrews chapter 7 gets into. What is going on here? How is this priesthood even a possibility? Why is he tithing to this guy? This is Abraham. So to get there... To continue and to get there into Hebrews 7, we have to look at the one other mention of Abraham in the Old Testament. So Psalm 110. If you'd like to turn there with me, feel free. Psalm 110. It's pretty short, uh, but pretty packs, it packs a pop. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus uses it of himself when he questions the religious leaders. Psalm 110, just seven short verses. Reads this way, and let me say really quickly first, I'm fully convinced after my study so far of Melchizedek that this psalm is all about Jesus. There are many scholars who, I mean, know more than me, have studied more than me. Many say it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And many say we think it's about David or we think it's about Solomon. And Jesus is involved, but not as highly. I think this is in total about the Christ. I think David's a prophet here. Uh, David, this is a psalm of David as it probably reads in your, in your Bible. Beginning in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, and this is my understanding here, God the Father says to God the Son. God the Father says to God the Son, but as, as you read it, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. And here we come, Melchizedek, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
Uh, those last three verses you can read for context. They give a little bit of extra context. But the key verse there is verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek goes unmentioned in the scriptures from Genesis 14 until this Psalm of David. And you have this one verse that's out of nowhere seemingly that says, What? Somebody is a priest forever? In the order of Melchizedek, so there's a priestly line from Melchizedek, and there's somebody that, who's that priest. You know, maybe Solomon, maybe David. I don't think so. I think Jesus. Here we simply learn from verse 4, Jesus is a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. How did this come about? It came about by an oath, an oath of the Father. See it there again with me? The Lord has sworn. So this... A priesthood came about by an oath. God said, you are a priest forever. Think, to son. According to the order of Melchizedek. So on this slide, I think, uh, we'll get to it probably here. We'll see the key things that the readers of the letter to the Hebrews could have already known about Melchizedek. From their knowledge of the Old Testament. Yeah, so there's a little bit there. These are things they might have already known. So these readers of the book of Hebrews received this book and they got a whole chapter and numerous other mentions in Hebrews about Melchizedek. And they're like, wait a second. Like, what can we even know about this guy? We've got one verse in Psalms and we've got one short passage in Genesis. Well, they can know a pretty good amount. Melchizedek's a real person. Now we're going to get into, there's an argument about that. I think they can know Melchizedek's a real person. He was the king of Salem or Jerusalem. Met Abram likely in the Kidron Valley or somewhere near Jerusalem in a valley. Uh, I would say under the shadow of the Mount of Olives and the Mount, uh, uh, Mount Zion. He fed Abram bread and wine, or at least he offered it. He was priest of God Most High, Yahweh, or El Elyon. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. They knew that. Uh, they knew that Melchizedek blessed Abram. Uh, they knew that Jesus is a priest forever in Melchizedek's order from Psalm 110. And finally, they knew that Jesus received his priesthood by the oath of God the Father. Maybe similar to Melchizedek's, but they don't know that yet. Um, they don't know that yet. Finally, on to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. I think we're halfway there. Hebrews chapter 7. We'll only uh, touch on the first 10 verses. But verse 3 will challenge us. So here we go. Before we dig in for a few verses here, I do need to say I think our writer of Hebrews has a great read on his audience. But I wonder if he's got an even better read on our society as he pens this letter. Remember chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. Being designated by God, this is talking about Jesus, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You just want milk. You don't want anything else. You don't want the depths. You don't want the meat. He says, I have much to say about Melchizedek, but you're dull of hearing. You only want milk. Most evangelical churches you'll walk into today, have exactly zero interest, I think, in mining the depths of God's Word. They are satisfied with the milk. 
of what's mentioned at the start of chapter 6 of uh, salvation, repentance, faith. They're satisfied with just those milk ideas, the first ideas, and those are good ideas. They're satisfied with those. Uh, maybe sprinkle in a little bit of grace and some love, and we're all good, and that's enough. If you start a study on Melchizedek or the priesthood or even a, you know, a book like Revelation or talk about sanctification, uh, most churchgoers in America and around the world are probably out. We're probably out on that. Well, the author of Hebrews says we need to dig. We need to go deep. We need to take in the meat to desire to know God more by knowing his word with more depth. Uh, one of my mentors from age two <laughs> said to me once, Tru- to truly know the God of the word, you must truly know the word of God. So here we go. Mining the depths a bit today. So we're going to read chapter uh, 6, just verse 20, because that's when Melchizedek's name comes back up. So it talks about where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us in the Holy of Holies, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God Most High, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils, was it first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is the king of peace. Okay, so we're probably together so far. Easy stuff so far, right? Um, so before we get into verse 3, don't read ahead. No, I'm just kidding. Before we get into verse 3, as we dig into this tough stuff, I've got to say that there are three opinions out there on who is Melchizedek. One opinion is Melchizedek was an angel. Second opinion is Melchizedek was a theophany. So it was Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. Melchizedek was Jesus. Okay? Those are two opinions. I'm going to take the third opinion that Melchizedek was a man. Um... I've got some ideas on why we could spend a whole sermon on why he might not be an angel, why he might not be a theophany, but simply uh, an order of angelic priests is the order of priests that Jesus comes from. I don't think so. If Melchizedek is an angel and it's an order of angelic priesthood, that's what they would be saying if he's an angel. Uh, That doesn't really make sense with a great high priest who knows our every temptation, who knows our fear. No, he's from a human priesthood. Uh, I would say this is required by the rest of Hebrews and the rest of God's word, that he can't be an angel. And then uh, Melchizedek as a theophany. Well, verse 3, as we're going to read here, tells us that Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. Made like? If it's Jesus... He's not like the Son of God. He would be, this would be a huge interpretive problem. He is the Son of God. And, and if that's true, if it was a theophany, I think our author would tell us, and this Melchizedek was the Son of God. Okay, now I can get on board with you. But he said, made like the Son of God? I don't think so. So here we go. I'll be treating him as a man as we read these verses. We're going to read 3 through 10. Talk a lot about 3. And then finish up 4 through 10. Melchizedek, without father, 
without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Whoa! Now observe how great this man was to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received their priest's office, have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is, from their brethren, although these are descended, they're from Abram. The ones who are to collect are from Abraham. Verse 6, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that's Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. He blessed the one who had all the promises? What? That's what the author's doing here. He's blowing some minds. I hope he's blowing ours a little bit too, right? Verse 7, but without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The lesser Abraham, oh my goodness, is blessed by the greater, Melchizedek. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on, Melchizedek. Okay, problem. Here we go. Verse 9, and so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, he paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Okay, that's where we're going to end today. You ready? Uh, how are we doing so far? We're going to make it. Um, as we take these verses in, we must remember a few facts about the Levitical priesthood because it's mentioned in there. From Levi, from Levi, right? The Levitical priesthood. The Levitical pri- priesthood is all based on genealogy. And guess what? The book of Genesis is all about genealogies. I mean, you see them consistently. You find out who the father is and who the grandfather and who the. It's all about genealogies. How much of genealogy do we know about Melchizedek? We know nothing. We know nothing. My dad used to say that a lot. We know nothing. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Okay. Um, Verse 3 stands in complete opposition to the normal thoughts about the Levitical priesthood. Okay? Um, verse 3 tells us Melchizedek, no father, no mother, no genealogy. Okay. Well, then he can't be in the priesthood, would be most uh, Hebrew thought patterns, most Israelite thought patterns. Well, he can't be in. He can't even be in Israel if he doesn't have genealogy. Can't even be a part of us if we don't know that he's a Jew, like he's not us. No way. Not priest, not us, not nothing. But it gets worse, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. What? But made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually, forever. Oh, this is going to be hard. Um, To get to this, we're going to have to understand types. Uh, So. We have to understand what types are in God's Word. If we're going to understand this passage. Uh, so, types and antitypes. So, very simply, a type and antitype. In the Old Testament, there are foreshadowings of Christ, or foreshadowings of things that God would do in the New. The Old Testament foreshadowing is called the type, and then in the New Testament, we find the antitype. Okay, We find the, the fulfillment of that, in essence. That's the simple 
way to think about it. Sometimes you'll see specific language used. Actually, you'll always see specific language used that teaches us, hey, in the Old Testament, God was trying to teach you something about Jesus. Or in the Old Testament, God was trying to teach you something about baptism. So Noah and the ark going through the flood, that's a type of baptism in the New Testament, the antitype. Uh, Isaac at the altar, it's a type in the Old Testament of Jesus in the New Testament, the antitype, the perfect sacrifice. Okay? God will provide the ramp, that's type and antitype. And I think that's what we have going on here with Melchizedek. We have a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, because of the language, like or as, that's used here in verse 3, but made like the Son of God. We've got a type and an antitype. There's something about Melchizedek, or maybe multiple things, that teach us about who Jesus is, that help us understand what Jesus has done. Types and antitypes. Okay, here we go. A couple ideas I also saw, I also saw as I studied verse 3. Uh, many of the rabbis thought that they could draw conclusions from things not written in the Torah, and this was accepted. Like all of the Jews said, oh yeah, the rabbis, yeah, they can do that. From things not written, they can draw conclusions. It was called quad non Torah non in mundo. Okay. Um, so they thought, let's just draw conclusions. Therefore, in the New Testament, this Hebrew writer may be saying, boy, we don't see a father for Melchizedek. We don't see a mother mentioned. We don't see a genealogy listed. So he didn't have it. So he didn't have it. That's possibly what this author is doing. He's using the rabbinic tradition and saying, yeah, you know, so we don't have it. So he, he didn't have a genealogy, didn't have father, didn't have a mother. And that's the way he says it. Another possibility for why it's said this way in verse 3 is uh, it, Jewish culture says a heathen doesn't have a father. When a heathen turns to Jewish belief, he has no legal father, is what they would say, according to Jewish law. The rabbis don't say he has no father at all, but he has no legal father when a heathen is Melchizedek, um, a Hebrew, is he an Israelite? Well, there's no such thing yet except for Abram himself coming from him. You would find Hebrews. So he's not. He's a heathen. Melchizedek's a heathen. He's a Gentile. He has no father. He can't be accepted into our priesthood if he has no father. So those are a couple possibilities for what this Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews may be thinking about as he writes verse 3. Whether these ideas in view... Uh, are in view or not, I think that the writer of Hebrews is speaking primarily about the story of Melchizedek, not the man. Now, here's a key as we're trying to understand this. He's talking about the story of Melchizedek, what we have in Genesis 14 and what we have in Psalms 110. Psalm 110. Speaking about the story, not the man. I hope that makes sense. Our author is looking back at God's revealed truth about Melchizedek, and he's relating it to who Jesus is in reality. More simply, Melchizedek didn't have the father-mother genealogy to be a priest from what we know of him in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. That's what the author tells us. He didn't have the genealogy to be a priest. He didn't have the right father or mother to be a priest. He's not even Jewish. He doesn't have father, no mother, without genealogy. 
Jesus definitely didn't have the right father or mother genealogy to be the high priest. He couldn't be because he's not from the tribe of Levi. And that's the that's a comparison that we see. But he is the high priest. So how? We know nothing of Melchizedek's beginning or ending. Jesus doesn't have either and is truly a priest perpetually. We don't know anything about Melchizedek's beginning or ending. And Jesus doesn't have those. No beginning, no end. That's the point the author's making. We don't know anything about Melchizedek, so maybe he doesn't have one in essence. Jesus doesn't. And that's why he can be high priest. Finally, verses 4 through 10 add one beautiful idea to the story of Melchizedek. Did you catch it? It's most, most clearly stated in verse 9. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. How great a man was Melchizedek? So great that Abraham the patriarch tithed to him of his choicest spoils. Then we're told in uh, verses 5 and 6 that it's from Abraham, his descendants, specifically from his great-grandson Levi, that we would have the priesthood. It's the law that they are to collect tithes. God's law says the Levites collect tithes. They tithe to no one. Why would the man who is their forefather tithe to some Canaanite Gentile? Verse 7 moves on to get another shot, uh, excuse me, another shot in on anyone who wants to follow Abraham and not Jesus. Verse 7 reads this way. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard. Wrong verse. I turned the wrong way. Verse 7. But without any dispute, the lesser is being blessed by the greater. Remember when Genesis mentioned that Melchizedek blessed Abraham? Well, the lesser was blessed by the greater. This is true in two ways. In the ways that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, they must remember that Christ is greater. Melchizedek, the type of Christ, Christ is greater. And in that way, Melchizedek's greater. The other truth is that the main idea in view here is the two orders of priests. That's what we see. We see Levi brought up there because we're talking about his order of priests and the Melchizedekan order of priests. The Melchizedekan is greater than the Levitical. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham in that specifically. Almost there. Last idea, and then we're going to close. Verse 8. Melchizedek lives on. That's what we're told. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. He lives on in the manner we mentioned before. He's without end of days in the scriptures. We don't find out how he died and when he died in his age at death. And he lives on in a way that Christ's priesthood in the order of Melchizedek lives on eternally. His priesthood lives on into eternity through Christ. Verse 9 and 10, in a way of speaking, Levi paid tithes to the better priest. Melchizedek uh, this is when Abram did so. That's what happens. When, when Abram paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi paid tithes. This is what we're saying. 
in a way of speaking, is what we're told there. Okay, so the next time we get together, we'll get to some of the uh, bigger ideas because uh, we get lost in the weeds a little bit there with verse 3. But we'll get to some of the bigger ideas from chapter 7 in Melchizedek, and there will be many applications uh, that I think that we can make. But for today, dig into the depths. Go for the meat. Don't be satisfied with the milk. Um, it's inherent in God's nature that if he sees a situation requiring action, he provides. That is, that is unique for us as believers to be able to look to God and say, I know you see. I know you know. I know you know my innermost being. You know, you know where my heart is. You know my struggle. He, he sees. And, but not only does he see, if there's ever a moment when his action is necessary by his character, he acts. It's not a question about, let me, let me give him a little time in this. No. If it, there's a situation requiring his action, he acts. What we can see already about our Lord Jesus in this passage, like Melchizedek, he's the king of peace. He's the king of righteousness who will rule from Jerusalem, just like Melchizedek did. Jerusalem will see peace, or the other understanding of Jerusalem, peace will be established in Jerusalem. I can't wait for that day. And finally, like Melchizedek, we are priests of the Most High God. We can serve one another with gifts of bread and wine. Well, okay, so uh, not me, I don't drink wine. But we can serve one another with gifts of bread and you name it, right? Maybe you finish that with wine. Maybe you finish it with, uh, I don't know, I've probably finished it. Right now I'm finishing it with uh, Pepsi Zero Mango, okay? That's where I'm at, just so you know. We can bless others who cross our paths. That's all that happened. Melchizedek wasn't involved in any other way here. He wasn't one of these kings at war. Abram crosses his path, walks through his valley. He comes out with a gift and blesses him and blesses him. We should recognize and put words to the Lord's doing in our midst because that's what Melchizedek does. He says, God has given you this victory. El Elyon, the God Most High did this. We recognize it, we put it in words, and we don't take credit for what God's up to. Give credit where credit is due to God. Let's close with prayer. God, thank you so much. Uh, even for a chapter like Hebrews 7, which is hard. Uh, Father, help us. I pray that uh, what I taught was your word. And Father, if there's something in what I taught that's not uh, founded, Father, if, it, if this was you in a theophany or if this was an angel, please help us understand that as we study. Uh, Father, if this was a man, Melchizedek, and he represented Christ or symbolized Christ in numerous ways, help us understand those symbols and be more thankful for the Savior that we serve. Uh, because of it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.